1: Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke.
0: To the
1: who above. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 23. We
2: have come to the place in Luke 23 in verse... 39 today where jesus is now on the cross so last week the soldiers were gambling as if it was just any other day on the job the common people were spectating doing nothing to stop this wrong the religious leaders and the soldiers were mocking jesus as if he wasn't who he really was but there's one more group here with jesus that we haven't mentioned and it's the other two criminals who are crucified next to him they have something to say to Jesus as well. And in this exchange, we will see Jesus change a person for eternity. The joy that was set before Christ, that caused him to endure the cross and despise its shame, is embodied in this rescued criminal. Because he represents this criminal, he represents the simplicity of salvation. And the simplicity is this that Jesus won. He won there on the cross, and anyone who places their trust in Him can be saved, no matter how big a failure they've been. So chapter 23, we begin in verse 39. It says, And one of the malefactors, the criminals, which were hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, seeing you are in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto you, today you shall be with me in paradise. This first criminal here, it mentions that he railed on Jesus. The word there means to slander or insult or curse. And it's in the imperfect tense, which means he just kept on blasting Jesus. And and the theme of his railing was, if you're the Christ, then save yourself and us. Now, In Greek, they have four cases of what we would call if-then clauses or conditional clauses. And the first case clause is the condition of reality. So usually when it's the first case, you can actually translate if as since. So since you're the Christ, since you're the Messiah, save yourself and us. So he's, he's not mocking Jesus saying, if you're the Messiah, like the soldiers and the priests were. He's saying, no, since you're the Messiah then you need to save us, save yourself, and then us. You know, he's not mocking Jesus. He's upset with Jesus because he thinks God owes him something. The word there, save yourself and us, is in the imperative, which means since you're the Messiah, you must save yourself. You can't die here, and you must save us because we're on your side. We're, we're part of the good guys just like you. See, he keeps blasting Jesus because Jesus wasn't doing what he believed he deserved. That is not too unlike many I talk to today. I'm one of the good guys. I deserve to be rescued. I deserve to go to heaven. And that mentality will never get the answer you want from Jesus. You will keep blasting him and going, God, I don't understand why you're doing this to me. God, I don't understand why you're doing this to me. God, I don't understand why why I have to go through this or why I have to go to the cross. I have to believe in Jesus or I have to do this or I have to do that. You know, Why do I have to be a Christian? If if you're always going to think that you're one of the good guys and that God owes you something, you're never going to get the answer you want from Jesus. In James chapter 4, we read it in our scripture reading, but James in his oh so gentle and tender way, he says, in verse one, where do wars and fightings come from among you? Like, why, why are there ever wars in the world? Why are there ever arguments between people? Why, why is it ever that two individuals are fighting? It's just don't they come from this, even from your lusts that war on your members? Every time you're angry is because you want something and you're not getting it. Think about that next time you get upset. Anytime someone's angry, anytime someone goes to war, whether it's in a personal relationship or it's nationally, it's because you want something and you can't get it. It doesn't mean that the thing that you want is evil or bad, but whenever you respond by going to war with someone, by being angry with someone, it's because you want something and you can't have it. He says, you lust and you have not. You kill and you desire to have, but you cannot obtain. You fight and you war, but you have not because you ask not. We're angry because what we want, whether it's good or bad, we're trying to go about getting it in our own terms, in our own way. We're not bringing it to the Lord. And then if we do bring it to the Lord, we still don't receive. He says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss so that you might consume it upon your lust. You're asking for the wrong reasons. You're not asking for it for good reasons. You're asking for it to consume it upon your own desires. So he says, you adulterers and adulteresses, Told you he was just a gentle, kind-hearted man. Do you not know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? He somehow equates this idea of consuming things on your own desires, wanting things so you can just be a consumer with the attitude of the world and therefore unfaithfulness to him. Don't you know that the friendship of the world is like cheating on God? It's like being his enemy. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Or don't you think that the scripture says in vain? Do you, do you think it, it, it's meaningless when the scripture says that the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? God longs for us. He longs for a relationship with us. He longs for us to be yielded to him. He longs for us to trust him. He longs for us to fear him, to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. The scripture, it says to us, listen, The Spirit desires something that's completely opposite of what your flesh wants. The Spirit desires something for you that's completely different than what the world wants. But here's the good news. Even if that's how you've done things your whole life or how you're doing things now, He gives more grace. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't stop reaching out to us. Wherefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, when we may have had a bad attitude or longing for things that just to consume it upon our own desires. The Lord's there with grace if we'll just humble ourselves and recognize our wrong attitude. Now, if we will not humble ourselves, we won't recognize our wrong attitude. The Bible says he resists the proud. The word resist there, it means to take an opposite position against. I don't want God to ever be in the opposite position against me where he's opposing me. I don't want him to have to be fighting against me because I will never win that fight. The Bible says he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now the reason that this guy keeps blasting Jesus is because Jesus isn't responding to him. Instead of humbling himself, he's being prideful and therefore the Lord's still resisting him. He's got nothing to say to him. Now while this frustrated criminal repeatedly blasts jesus the other criminal humbles himself it says in verse 40 but the other answering to his compatriot there he rebuked him saying do you not fear god now the word they rebuked is also in the perfect tense so that the idea is every time this guy blasts jesus again the other criminal rebukes him and says don't you fear god man seeing you're in the same condemnation Every time this guy rails on Jesus, his partner, questions his mindset and his attitude. Don't you fear God, man? The word there, fear, we see it frequently in the book of Proverbs. And it's interesting that he would ask him this because Proverbs 8.13 says, "...the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy in the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate." Wisdom is speaking there. These are the things that God hates. Pride, arrogance, the evil way, the froward mouth, the twisted perverse mouth that says things that it should never utter. That's what God hates. And the fear of the Lord is to hate those same things. To be a God-fearing person means you love what God loves and you hate what he hates instead of doing things your own way and deciding your ways better than God's. Well, this guy's going, you need to rescue us. You need to rescue yourself. You're a good guy and we're a good guy. We're part of the good guys too. While saying he was a good guy, he was doing evil by blasting the Lord. I can't claim to be a good guy when I love what I want instead of loving what God loves. I can't. When I see photographs, people talking about someone who loves God. But that same individual is out there teaching heresy. I see Christians posting photographs of prominent figures in our culture who say they love God. We need, these people love God. We need to look up to them. And those people display attitudes and, and behaviors that God hates. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Not to be mean, but I, I don't understand your version of Christianity. You can't claim to be a good guy when you love what God hates. The phrase, I'm a good person, but I don't agree with what the Bible says about, and then fill in the blank, X, Y, Z. That's an oxymoron. Good guys don't yell at God. They don't demand that God do as they please, especially with their dying breaths. That's what rebels do. That's what a proud person does. And so this guy says to me, he goes, don't you fear God, man? You say, we're the good guys, and you're yelling at the Messiah over here? Don't you realize you're going to be dead in just a short period of time? These are your last breaths, man, and you're going to waste them yelling at God's son? Don't you fear God? A humble person, on the other hand, assesses their life accurately because they look at their life in light of what God says. And so this guy goes, and we, and I'm dying here too, we indeed justly, righteously, we deserve to be here. For we receive the due reward for our deeds. Our de- what we're experiencing now measures accurately with what we did. We broke the law. We killed people. We deserve to be here. But Jesus, this guy? No. Our boss Barabbas, he deserves to be in that, on that cross right now. Not Jesus. But this man has done nothing Amiss, nothing out of place, nothing wrong. Now, what's interesting is both of these guys believe Jesus is good. Both of them do. The first guy said that he was the Messiah. Since you're the Messiah, save yourself and then us. They both believe Jesus is the Messiah, but their attitudes toward God are very, very different. Because only one of these men actually trusts the Lord. Good verse 42. And he said unto Jesus, I don't know how many times he had to rebuke his partner in crime before he finally turns to Jesus. But he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, Krios, master, boss, the one who's in charge, not my will, but what I ask is that you would remember me when you come into your kingdom. The word remember here is similar to where the Bible talks about how God remembered Noah. Something." you know, the flood came and Noah's floating in his boat and the Lord's up there playing chess with Gabriel. And, and Gabriel's like, hey, uh, Lord, you know, have you thought about what you're going to do with Noah? And he's like, oh, Noah, oh, I forgot, man. Ah, oh, the Lord remembered Noah. That's not what it means when the Lord remembered Noah. The word remember here, it means to recall information about someone and then to respond in an appropriate manner. So the idea is, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, when this situation, your situation is different, he says, please remember my attitude here and respond accordingly. That's pretty crazy when you think about this guy saying, when you come into your kingdom. How does a guy who's going to be dead in just a few hours come into a kingdom? He's going to be dead, right? There's so much faith in in this verse here, of this just one request that this guy makes to Jesus. First off, he declares, you're the boss, not me. He calls him Lord. Secondly, he says, you're the Messiah, fully capable of being king right now, but you've chosen not to do that yet. I, I believe that. So when you come into your kingdom, when you do decide to take up that sovereign role, the word there, coming into your kingdom, means when you take on your royal power, when you take on the sovereign power that's rightfully yours, Which means, by the way, Jesus would have to come back from the dead. That's what he's declaring here. When you come back from the dead and when you take up your throne, please remember that my trust is in you. That I'm believing you're my only hope. Both confess that Jesus is the Messiah. But only one of them trusts the Lord. And so while Jesus does not reply to the first man he does reply to this man's request in verse 43. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you. The word verily is a phrase of strong affirmation. It means don't doubt what I'm about to say to you for even a moment. Today you shall be with me in paradise. The word here, paradise, it's not an original Greek word, not an original Hebrew word. It's a loner word from Persian. The Persians used it to describe a park surrounded by a wall. The Greek translation of the Old Testament used it to describe the Garden of Eden, the millennial kingdom age where Messiah is ruling and reigning, or to describe heaven. In the New Testament, it is always used to describe heaven. Today, you'll be with me in heaven. Jesus' response here is so important for two reasons. First, theological. Second, personal. So let's look at the theological implications of Jesus' response here. Number one, this, this guy is a criminal who, by his own admission, deserves his execution. So that means all of this guy's conversion experience occurs on the cross, right? He's a criminal who deserves his execution, So all of his conversion experience occurs right here on the cross. Now, the other gospel writers mention that when they were first crucified, when they're first all nailed to the cross, he is also blasting Jesus. He is right there with his partner in crime, blasting Jesus as well. So for him to all of a sudden say, Do you not fear God, seeing you in the same condemnation? At some point, he changed his thinking. At some point, he stopped being that unrepentant criminal and he repented. Now that's a fancy word that we throw out at church a lot. What does it mean? The word repent, it simply means to change the mind. And it is essential to placing my faith in Christ. For to trust Christ for righteousness, I must stop trusting in my own righteousness. Turn to Romans chapter 10 with me. Paul, as he is giving... His great teaching on salvation in this letter to the Romans comes to a place where he has to address this issue of Israel being in unbelief. And so in chapter 9, he begins to address that topic after he lays out the theology of salvation in the first eight chapters. In chapter 9, he addresses this issue of God's people now being in unbelief. And he explains that the reason they're in unbelief Isn't because God failed, but it's because they have rejected God's path for righteousness. And so he says in chapter 10, verse 1 Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to truth, it's not according to knowledge. Well, how is that so? For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness because they're doing that, they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness that comes from God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. So this idea, the reason that they were in this state, that most Jews back then were in unbelief, even though they were God's chosen people, even though God had given them precious promises, is because they had rejected God's righteousness and were seeking to establish their own righteousness. And if you're going to come to faith in Christ, you have to leave that behind. This is where repentance comes in repentance it means that i leave behind this idea that i'm good when i change my mind it's not just about saying i believe in jesus because the other criminal believed jesus was the messiah in james chapter 2 verse 19 james challenges his listeners and he says to them, listen you say you believe great the devils believe and they do a, a better step they tremble but the demons aren't going to heaven faith faith is not intellectually assenting to the idea correct idea of who jesus is you can intellectually assent to the correct idea of who jesus is and still be lost faith the word means in in the bible it means to trust to place one's reliance upon so what exactly am i supposed to trust jesus for Well, still here in Romans 10, look at verses 9 and 10. This is the word of faith which Paul preached. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. That if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. The word confession is the word homologio in the Greek. It means to say the same thing. So when I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, I am saying the same thing that God says about his son. So what does God say about his son? Well, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, I can't display the attitude that this other guy is displaying here where I'm trying to get Jesus to listen to me. Do you understand the difference? Here's this guy comes, and he demands that Jesus rescue him because he's one of the good guys. I've earned this, God. I'm a good guy. I shouldn't be dying on this cross. I should be out there free. Enjoying my life, living my life, because I've lived a good life. That is not confessing with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And that's why his buddy asks him, don't you fear God? We deserve to be here. We have done wrong. See, when I place my faith in Christ, it means I stop believing I'm a good person. And I start trusting that Jesus alone can rescue me from my sin and the judgment it has earned me. And that's exactly what this other criminal does. In Romans ten nine. he confesses with his mouth, Lord Jesus, Lord, remember me. Please remember me when you come into your kingdom and because he does that Jesus tells him he's saved he says you're going to be with me in heaven now that has fascinating theological implications this means baptism doesn't save us means the sacraments don't save us the church doesn't save us a preacher doesn't save us but faith in Christ alone is what saves us amen that's it that's it this guy had no opportunity to do any other things here. But he confessed Jesus as his Lord. Believed that God was going to raise him from the dead. Put all his hope in Christ. And the Bible says he's, Jesus turned to him and said, you're going to be with me in paradise today. That's all you had to do. Humble yourself because he gives more grace. Should I get baptized? Yes. Should I go to church? Yes. Should I obey God? Yes. But not to get saved. I should do those things because I am saved. And there's a big difference there. A very big difference. Don't let anyone ever tell you that salvation is faith in Jesus plus something else. Because being right with God comes from trusting Christ alone, period. When I share this inevitably someone will say to me so you're saying I can be a decent human being my entire life but never trust Jesus and I'll go to hell but an awful human being can repent and trust Jesus as they're dying and they'll go to heaven and my wholehearted answer to you without any doubt and any restraint is yes you have got it exactly right and your question shows your problem See, you still believe you're good. The Bible says, therefore, that God will resist you. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The fear of the Lord hates pride, but you love it. And so while your sin is acceptable to you, it is not acceptable to God. And therefore, until you recognize it, you will continue to be lost, even though you fit the description of a decent human being. What Jesus says here is important for theological reasons. It is also very important for personal reasons because this guy is in heaven right now. His life was an awful train wreck. But when he breathed his last here, he took his first breath in heaven. And that means whatever you and I have done no matter how long we've done it. Jesus not just can rescue us and rescue you, but he wants to rescue you.
1: God's love is perfectly seen on the cross. He was betrayed, bruised, broken, and forsaken on our behalf. Jesus died for his betrayers, the very people that rejected him and hated him. He died for people like Judas and Peter. He died for all sorts of failures and sinners. And yet, there was the joy set before Him that we would be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. This is God's love on display for us. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will a Ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.